Let us pray. Almighty and ever-living God, whose servant Thomas Cranmer, with others, restored the language of the people in the prayers of your church. Make us always thankful for this heritage and help us out to pray in the spirit and with the understanding that we may worthily magnify your holy name through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Collect for the celebration of the common prayer, which we'll get to momentarily, in a moment. Just realized, I just learned that momentarily doesn't mean in a moment. So, uh, but first, I really wanted, since more logical to start this week's really two sessions into one with the Radical Reformation. In a sense, we're getting an odd sort of uh, matchup this week because in the Radical Reformation, if you will, we get the extreme left of the Reformation and then in the Reformation of the Church of England, we're going to get the right wing of the Reformation. Um, about that when we get there. Uh, the Reformation took place beginning in Zurich with people who felt that asked enough. And key figures in Zurich who got the ball rolling, including Conrad Grebel, Balthazar Hubmeier and Georg Blaurock um, and Felix Mans, among others. In terms of the Radical Reformation would be Jakob Hutter, from whom the sect known as the Hutterites got their name, Menno Simmons, from whom the Mennonites draw their name, and Jacob Amman, who gave his name to the Amish movement, uh, a more conservative wing, basically, of the Mennonite churches. Now, the origins were in Zurich, about the second Zurich disputation in 1820 basically called to debate two subjects, images and the mass. Images and the mass. And the main outcome we talked about last week that were urged to preach against images, and this gradually led to the purging of images from the churches in Zurich. And I think I mentioned that I actually did visit the uh, the Münster in Zurich, and it was an extraordinarily bare building in many ways. No statues, no images, no pictures, nothing. However, there were some people, especially people like Conrad, who thought that Swingley wasn't moving fast enough. And the issue of the mass uh, came up really towards the end of the meeting, the disputation. There was some discussions about the Mass, but it was about to end with no decision being made at the disputation. So Conrad Grebel got up and said, what should be done about the Mass? And Swingley indicated that the city council would make that decision because Swingley only wanted to move as fast as the city council was willing to move. A man named Simon Stumpf, uh, a priest from the countryside, then stood up and said, the decision has already been made by the Spirit of God. In other words, to the radicals, the council of the city, the city council of Zurich right to make decisions. It was based, should be based entirely 
on, Bibli- on, the, on, Bi- on uh, biblical foundations. And the Bible is final authority, and therefore, they should be free to follow what the Bible dictated. Now, one of the key issues that very came up was the issue of infant baptism. And this is going to be very crucial for the development of the Radical Reformation. Because the radicals began preaching against infant baptism and actually began encouraging parents not to present their children for baptism. Because what they were doing is looking at Scripture, seeing that in Scripture there really was no precedent for infant baptism to be found anywhere. That baptism was appropriately, apparently, administered on declaration of faith who was touched by the God. Zurich City Council used to their infants should be expelled from Zurich. And this hit home with Conrad Grable for he had just refused to baptize his daughter Rachel. Now what was at stake in this? What is at stake is the idea that was almost universal throughout Europe that political unity demanded religious uniformity. That political unity demanded religious uniformity. And what that meant, what that meant is that in principle, coterminous well on January 21st 1525 it was a Saturday evening there were 18 radicals who had gathered together and at that point Conrad Grable to baptize him with true Christian baptism upon his faith and knowledge And then Grable baptized Blaurock, who in turn baptized others at the meeting. Now, a couple important about this. No priest available. These were basically. The second thing is that almost all of the men who were gathered in this meeting had been baptized as infants. In the eyes of the official and these are what are known as the milk bucket baptisms of 1525. And what's inter- it was called that because Basically, what Grable used is what was handy. There was a milk bucket handy at this meeting, and so he filled it with water and used that to baptize Blaurock, and he baptized the other. Um, That's why it's called the milk bucket baptisms. Now, the reason why I want to use that name here is because, remember, the key issue here was not the amount of water used was not how it was administered, it's the fact that it is administered upon understanding infant baptism is invalid, invalid. Now, the who did this, Anabaptists, and that was a term of abuse coined by the broader church because it's Greek for Balthasar. Balthasar I have never taught Anabaptism, but the right baptism of Christ, which is preceded by teaching and is a robbery of the right baptism of Christ. So this was a denial 
of the validity of infant baptism. As I said, the real issue here is that requires religious uniformity in the eyes of almost all the governments in Europe, and therefore the membership in the church and the commonwealth should be coterminous. So if you are not baptizing infants, if the boundaries of the church, boundaries of the commonwealth are not the same, what are you bringing about? And here we come to the really big idea of the Radical Reformation. Anybody care to guess what that is? What? It's not tied to politics. It's not tied to politics. What's our short-term phrase for that? Separation. Separation of church and state. Thank you. It is not to any movement this concept of a strict and state of church and who are to be separated. And uh, some key ideas that sort of float around that in order to clarify exactly what they meant by it. First, there are some biblical norms. Believers, among other things, are not to swear oaths or refer disputes to They are following and Corinthians in this. In other words, you don't take... That's the civil authority... And if believers have a dispute, you resolve it in person or you don't take court. You can't serve as a witness or a juror in court because you can't take an oath. So that is part of their understanding of what it means. Don't call a Mennonite or an Amish person to serve on jury duty. They won't do it. Believers are not to bear arms or offer forcible resistance to wrongdoers, nor to wield the sword. This is said that believers have no right of use gladius, uh, the right. In other words, strict pacifism. You may not bear arms, you know, Second Amendment notwithstanding. In other words, you know, you just don't bear arms. How many of you ever saw the movie Witness with Harrison Ford? Okay. Do you remember the scene where uh, they take his gun and they put it in the flower canister and he has to try to get it out and it's all covered with flour? Weapons were, and they were handling it as if it were some kind of polluted object, because in their eyes it is. Okay, you do not bear weapons. Here comes perhaps the doozy of them all. Civil government belongs to the world, and the world is under whose rule? Satan. Satan. Sorry, Judge. Believers belong to God's kingdom and so must not fill any office nor hold any rank under the government, which is to be passively obeyed only. And they're getting that from John and Romans. That are very It cannot require you to get baptized, nor indeed can the state require you to. Freedom of religion and liberty of These are affirmation. Separate. 
state, nonconformity to the world. In other words, you do not conform your behavior, including standards of dress, to worldly patterns, and the priesthood of all believers. One you need to realize, it's not it's still true in the Amish community, they do not have ministry. They do not have ministry. Our elders in the community who serve, you know, in leadership of communities, they don't even have church buildings. Where do they meet for worship? In each other's homes, just like the early church did. So, um, this is important to keep in mind. This is the separation and state is the overwhelming issue here. Yeah? What is it about the oath that they couldn't do? What did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? Don't take oaths. Don't swear by heaven because it is the throne of God. Don't swear by earth for it is his footstool. Don't swear by Jerusalem for it is the city of the great king. Do not even swear by your head because you cannot turn a single hair of it black or white or grow it back once it's gone. Didn't say that, but had to throw that in. Okay. And they took that not only seriously, but literally. Uh, one of the things that's interesting is that so do Orthodox Jews. So I remember when I was an observant Jew and I went to get my passport, I had to tell them that I would affirm rather than swear the statement that you have to do in order to get a passport. And that is now uh, one of the things that is available in court in getting a passport, you can, if you have religious objections to swearing, you can affirm. Okay? Also, suppose you are called as a witness in court. What are you asked to swear on? A Bible. Well, my God, what a desecration of the word of the God that civil government should actually use a Bible as a tool of law enforcement. Okay. But you begin to see this is the, the these churches, the Mennonites, the Anabapt, the Amish, the Hutterites, all of these so-called Anabaptist Reformed churches are historic peace churches. And that meant that, you know, in terms of the Selective Service Act, in terms of the draft, they were recognized almost by definition as conscientious objectors. But they did make people do alternative service. Until basically one of the key turning points, by the way, was the formation of the War Resisters League during World War II. And this was largely a group of Mennonites who came to understand that by doing alternative service, they were still aiding the war effort. And therefore, they began refusing to do alternative service and went to prison and suffered immensely in prison um, as a result of this act of protest against the war. So they take their concepts of nonviolence and pacifism very, very seriously. Other questions? Okay. Yo. Yeah.
Mm -hmm. Pretty good argument. The problem was he wasn't he wasn't a Mennonite or an Amish. Us. Oh, just remember, was not the first one. Was also what is the definition of your peers for the purposes of a jury trial? Uh, it would be a problem if you had an Amish person who was accused of a crime. Okay, how do you impanel a jury of his peers if none of them uh, would serve on a jury? Interesting question. How would you answer that, Judge? Well, uh, it reminds me of the case in Worcester where the Amish family had uh, a child who had uh, leukemia, and to get the child to the hospital, they bought an old Ford and painted it all black and took that child to the hospital. They were shunned uh, by the bishop and the community, and they sued the bishops for judgment, and they, they sat there during the entire trial Yes. One of the things, uh, we get a lot, and when I work at the bus station, have a lot of Amish customers who want to go to New Philadelphia, Newcomer's Town, um, come back, you know, places like that, and uh, invariably pay in cash. Only once did I actually have an Amish family come up to get tickets and someone was buying and he pulled out a credit card and I looked at him and I said, what are you doing with a credit card? He said, use it in my business. I have to use it in my business. There the issue is not conforming to the world. And if the world that does so these people have the bliss of being unplugged. And uh, sort of imagine, it's, it's, it's one of the things that uh, I remember from my days as an Orthodox Jew. Someone says, well, how can you handle an entire day without television or radio? And I said, are you so addicted to them that you cannot go a day without that? It's freedom in many ways to be unplugged. Any other questions, comments before we move? Yeah. I'm not sure I would handle a case community. Technically speaking, you've got a clash there of church and state because their religious convictions would indicate the civil court should not become involved. On the other hand, you have law enforcement and the, the civil courts who say, we have to because this is a violation of civil law. And I think it would be a case of they would obediently, you know, in passive obedience, they, they might not, you know, testify in the court, but they would let the court do its job as best they can um, because, again, you still have uh, that idea of, you know, don't forget that from our perspective as non-radicals in the Reformation, what is supreme in the land? It is the civil authority that is supreme even over the church. And there are limits to freedom of religion. People don't realize that sometimes that the First Amendment does not give you carte blanche. This issue came up in terms of the Native American peyote cult. Do you allow them to use a controlled substance in their rituals? It comes up a lot 
in New York and New Jersey over kosher slaughtering. You know, is that really humane? And so you get into all, this is where you really get I ever got to really dealing with it is when we discussed, when I was in seminary, we discussed the whole issue of the confessional and sacramental confession because the Episcopal Church did retain uh, sacramental confession or the right of reconciliation of a penitent to give it its more correct title in the Book of Common Prayer. And the rubric on that is pretty strict that if someone comes to you, even if they disclose something, a criminal act in confession, you're not supposed to make that known. And I remember one of my professors said, um, well, I hate to tell you this, you might have to go to jail over this one. And that's one of the things because like, for example, a Roman Catholic priest, if he is uh, subpoenaed to give testimony that involves the content of a confession and he does it, that person is defrocked and sent to a monastery of breaking the seal of the confession. We also got into that when it came to our, as you know, as clergy, you're responsible, you are a mandatory reporter for cases, for example, of child abuse. And so what do you do when comes to you in the course of reconciliation of a penitent and, say, and confesses that they've been sexually molesting their daughter? Or their stepdaughter. Well, what do you do? The one thing that you still have at your disposal is to withhold absolution. And you can say, something has got to take place here. And so what you can do is before you pronounce absolution, you can say, we're going to go to my office and you're going to call the Department of Family Services and you're going to acknowledge what's taking place and you sit there and you watch them do that and you withhold absolution until they do that. And if they're not willing to do that, then you will inform them, I'm sorry, I cannot grant you absolution. That's the only thing you can do. All right, other questions? Yeah? Mm-hmm. It's how that, how that too. Yeah. All of these things get to be very dicey. And um, Judge Milliken, you're in a much better position to know about that. Okay? Are we ready to move? Spirit. Fun. Now for something uh, I am an Anglican. I am an Episcopalian. That's the church I was baptized in. That is the church in which I was ordained. So I wanted to sing you a little ditty to give you some idea of what it is like to be an Anglican, okay? I am an Anglican. I am C of E. Neither high church nor low church but apostolic, Catholic, and free. Not a Lutheran, nor a Presby, nor a Baptist, white with foam. I am an Anglican, just a hat from Rome. I am an Anglican, via media, boom, boom. Okay, now, one of the key phrases that I need to explain is what does via media mean? Via media, the middle way, one of the things that most people misconceive about this Anglican idea of the via media is sort of finding the midpoint between extremes. And that means sort of walking a narrow line, no. 
what we will see is that in fact, it is trying to find the broadest middle ground possible between extremes. The broadest middle ground possible between extremes. The thing to find about is to be than the song I just an Anglican is a Christian who is in communion with the Archbishop of Canterbury and who uses some recognized common prayer. Uh, an Anglican is in communion with the Archbishop of Canterbury and uses some recognized form of the Book of Common Prayer. Now, both of those of worship, worship, and therefore one of the key things that uh, Anglicans take seriously is a statement by a church father known as Prosper of Aquitaine. It's often as Lex Orandi, Lex Credi. Quote in Latin is Lex Orandi, Legem Statuat Credendi. And for those, unlike Judge Milliken, who don't know Latin, the law of praise establishes the law of faith. The law of praise establishes the law of faith. In other words, your primary theology is not a condition. It's not even a creed. It is how you worship. How you worship. Now, for precise theologians, that drives them crazy. I remember one of the things we used to have every year in West Virginia, a marvelous conference we called Conference for Lutheran, Anglican, Roman Catholic. And we used to meet at one of the marvelous Roman Catholic retreat facilities, conference facilities that they had in West Virginia. And we would bring in some from each of the traditions and each a particular. I think it was possibly on Eucharist and the Anglican presenter was uh, Bishop Weinauer of Western North Carolina. And he pointed out something because you go and look, for example, at the Anglican Roman Catholic International Consultation. What do they produce in booklets? Lutheran. What do they produce? A few thin booklets. You go to a Lutheran Roman Catholic dialogue, five massive tomes. Because Catholics and Lutherans love documented. Do it literally, which can sometimes be frustrating, as when one Lutheran participant in Lutheran Episcopal Dialogue said, thing you millions will consider heresy. And there was this painful silence. Hmm. Well, I suppose this But again, it's as long as you can put the that is the issue. Now, how did we get there? Okay. First of all, another thing to be said about, about the English Reformation, everybody thinks that the Henry VIII started the English Reformation because basically, pardon the expression, he couldn't keep his pants zipped. Well, the fact of the matter Henry could have virtually to. That wasn't the issue. The issue was of succession, domestic succession. Married to Catherine of Aragon, who had borne him a daughter, all of their other children or and so his problem was dynastic. There had only been one other experiment in English history 
a female monarch, and that was Queen Maud, Queen Matilda, who was, I think, the daughter of Henry I. Uh, but at any rate, the country was embroiled. not sheathed to the hilt the entire time. It was a mess. And so the that was commonly held is that a woman and therefore he had to have a male heir. And Catherine clearly couldn't give it to him. Now, the odd part is Catherine had originally been married to Henry's older brother, Arthur. Okay died, and uh, they didn't have any story is, and the tale is, Henry VII, Henry's father, the Spanish alliance going, and he persuaded, you know, um, Henry to marry Catherine, although they actually pretty much a love match at the beginning. But Catherine had to testify that the marriage with Arthur had never been and so therefore they got a judgment from the to pronounce her marriage with Arthur, and therefore Henry could go ahead and marry Catherine. But now, he was looking at his Bible, and he saw that in Leviticus, a man shall not lie with the wife of his brother. It is an abomination. They shall die. And her inability to present him with a he saw of God on an incestuous relationship. And so he pressed his advisor, Cardinal Wolsey, let's get an annulment. And there was only one complication. Catherine had a very powerful nephew who was Charles V of the, the Holy Roman Emperor who take back Rome and hold the Pope prisoner. And it's not Charles really loved his aunt, but he was not about to countenance the degradation of his family that would involve from having her annulled. So they couldn't get what they wanted from the Pope. In our friend Thomas Cromwell. Thomas Cromwell. Remember I told you when we talked about Marsilius of Padua that he uh, was the one who had Padua's defensor Pacius, defender of the peace, translated into English in support of the royal Cromwell was the all of the legislation of the royal supremacy so that Henry could be divorced from Catherine and marry Anne Boleyn. So another thing to say is I remember there was a Roman Catholic who said to one of my colleagues, or Henry VIII founded it, to which he replied, where was your face before you washed it? So this was considered to be now, this, there are four monarchs in this, and they fit neatly into four stages of the Reformation. And Henry VIII led a It was not a reformation of the church, though some reformation ideas were brought in. Edward VI, the son he of and uncles, first Somerset, then Northumberland, and that was a time when England became thoroughly Protestant in its official worship, when the first and second Book of Common Prayers were authored. Then came the reaction under Mary Tudor, known uh, colloquially as Bloody Mary, um, who, uh, by the way, how many people know and Mother Goose rhymes, first to Mary Tudor. Mary, Mary, quite contrary, how does your garden go? With silver bells and cockle shells and pretty maids all in a row. What are silver bells? Canterbury bells from the pilgrimage to Canterbury. Cockle shells? 
again pilgrimage to Santa Postela, the was a cockle shell. And all in the row, the establish monks and nuns again. With silver bells and cockle shells, it's all in a row. And then comes Elizabeth first. Now, Elizabeth came to the throne, and she was at heart very much of a Protestant, but she was a Protestant of a more... Her favorite reformer was the second-generation reformer, Philip Melanchthon. She had read Melanchthon, and a lot of clergy in the country were much more imbued with the reform tradition, which had impacted the second book of common prayer, particularly the second book of common prayer. But Elizabeth was also a politique, as it was called. In other words, a practical politician. And so she was not so much interested in theological purity as in political expediency. So, for example, the Catholics had scores to calling the English monarch supreme head of the church in England. Her act of supremacy called her supreme governor of the church in England. More moderate stance in hopes that some of the more Catholic-minded people would say, okay, that's all right. But anyway, so she was trying to chart a moderate course. Now, it's time to go back in time. I've mentioned Thomas Cromwell. It's time to go and look at the other Thomas, who is extremely important when it comes to the Church of England, and that is Thomas Cranmer. Thomas Cranmer is a of the Reformation. He was a Cambridge. He had studied at Cambridge for many years. Actually, took a fairly long time to get through the educational process at Cambridge. Are not clear. And he first caught the attention of Henry uh, when he suggested at a meeting of English clergy during the annulment dispute over Catherine of Aragon that they consult the universities of Europe and get their best judgment on the state of the king's marriage to Catherine. And Henry thought that was a pretty good idea. And so did they, and they, you know, but most of them, most of the universities didn't want to get involved in this. Bit of the ivory tower going on. That as it may, Cranmer was elected as one of the parties who had to stealth mission to Rome to try for documents that Henry had what was known as imperial status. That is, that he was the imperator, or sole ruler, of his realm, and therefore had the power, essentially, to appoint archbishop, on and so forth. They were still in the process of doing that. Bishop of Canterbury, William Warham, died. It's perfect. Plus, he was sort of a private chaplain to the Boleyn family. So he nominated Cranmer and somehow got the okays from the Pope and from European authorities because they didn't want an open breach. And so Cranmer became Archbishop of Canterbury. And the story is that while he was taking his oath to the Pope, he had a piece of paper in his hand saying that uh, he only would obey that oath as far as conscience demanded. But be that as it may, Cranmer was the ecclesiastical leader and Cromwell the civil leader in Henry's revolt against Rome. And it was Cranmer who pronounced the nullity of uh, 
Henry's marriage to Catherine of Aragon, clearing the way for Anne Boleyn to be crowned queen. Uh, by the way, Henry did marry Anne Boleyn before his marriage with Catherine was formally annulled. Um, he did that because she happened to be pregnant. Um, so, any rate, there are things you can get away with that you can't get away with as a layperson. Now, basically, it was pretty much the exception of Henry remained a loyal And in fact, there was the King's Book published towards the realm that required auricular confession, clerical celibacy, all those other things that the reformers didn't like. Uh, the one thing that he did do was that there was a, an official Bible produce, a Bible in the English language that was forced by the crown and ordered to be set up in churches, though they wanted to be sure that it was chained to the lectern so that people wouldn't try to cart it off, even though it was a rather huge volume. And, but it was fascinating the first time officially in English churches you could have the parishioners gathered around while those among them who could read read to them from the Bible in their own language. They had never heard that before unless they happen to be literate and on the Bible. So that was about the... When Henry died and Edward VI was crowned, minor, his uncle, the protector, the Duke of Somerset, was a Protestant, as was the later protector, Northumberland. But the fact of... And this is sort of odd, because even though Henry was an extreme Catholic, he essentially let his son be raised by Protestants. That tells you where history was going. And so, at that point, he realized it was time to reform the... And the key instrument of reformation was to be the Book of Common Prayer. This is an interesting... Everyman's Library... First and second book of common prayer. The first book of common prayer was published in 1549, so popular that it sparked a revolt, and common prayer in 1552, reform of the liturgy in accordance with Protestant ideas. There were some continental reformers such as Peter Martyr Vermilye, so, um, Bootser, the reformer of Strasbourg, who had taken refuge in England, and they consulted with Cranmer. Look, it's of Cranmer, you know, common prayer. But, you know, he had a, a major role in prayer and was certainly the one who oversaw it. Cranmer had four principles that he wanted to use in, in developing the Book of Common Prayer. First of all, it had to be grounded in Holy Scripture. As one Episcopalian at a class, you know, waggishly remarked, you'd be amazed how many quotations from the Book of Common Prayer there are in the Bible. But most language of the Book of Common Prayer is drawn directly from Scripture. And nothing that was contrary to Scripture was to be allowed. The second principle is also very interesting from un for un Anglicanism. It had to be agreeable with the practice. of the early church. In other words, for Anglicans, second only to the Bible is the authority of the patristic period, the period of the church fathers. Held that most reliable guides 
Scripture. The most reliable guides to interpreting Scripture. So, what you wanted to do was to go back, if you, as much as you could, practice of the early church in terms of its worship. The third principle is it had to be edifying to the people. Had to move for them. And we're trying to be edified by a Latin man. Understand the Latin. didn't do anything to uplift, to inspire, to teach, to exhort, or anything else that the people needed to get out of their worship. But then, and this is an important, you know. It had to be unifying to the realm. Okay? Unifying to the realm. In other words, it had to be a liturgy that was broad enough that you could draw into the Church of England as many, as broad a spectrum of belief among the people of England as you could get in. As broad a spectrum of belief get in. And uh, this leads to the important, really big idea. Uh, I originally thought that the that from Thomas Cranmer, that this was going to be the Book of Common Prayer itself. Not quite. It is comprehension comprehension in other words the value here is that you are saying you that hide a spectrum of people as can agreeably come together for a common table. As broad a spectrum of people to worship around a common table. And that's why the one thing you never want to ask an Anglican for is precise theology. They don't want to define belief precisely. Plus, an average room of Anglican and God knows you'll have a lot of different opinions and it can easily end up in an argument, which is why the previous Archbishop of Canterbury, but I think maybe two previous, said the ecumenical challenge for the Anglican is not can we reestablish communion with other traditions, but can we hold the Anglican communion itself together? And open to question right now. Open to question whole idea is, are you using a book of common prayer? Are you in communion with the Archbishop of Canterbury? Well, since we don't care what you believe, we don't care what you believe. Just come and worship with us. Just come and worship with us. This is, again, going back to Lex Orandi Legem Statuat Credendi. Worship with us. So this is the big idea, comprehension. And this is the real meaning of the Via Media. You try to have a church which is as broad a tent as possible. Now, Elizabeth, in her settlement, pretty much succeeded for the most part. There were groups who, wouldn't, who weren't happy. One were sort of the more extreme Protestants, not radical reformers, people who were very much in line with the Swiss Reformation and the Reformed tradition, who felt that the reform of the Church of England hadn't gone far enough. They eventually developed into what became known as the Puritan movement because they wanted to purify the Church of England of its remnants. 
Then there were the Catholics who just refused to accept the idea of Reformation at all, who were known as recusants because they recused themselves from the act of uniformity. Now, you know, the Puritans were a, a, a pain in the, in the rear, but the recusants were a threat to the state because especially after the Pope deposed Elizabeth formally uh, after the execution of Mary, Queen of Scots, recusants were not merely religious nonconformists. They were considered traitors. They were considered traitors. And so things got pretty hot for Roman Catholics in England for a very long time. I'm gonna pause now because we're almost out of time. Time for a few questions if you have them. Yeah. Nope. Nope. People were not taught anything. The common people were illiterate and they spoke not a word of Latin. Remember, I think we talked about this when we talked about Swingley. You know, the mass said in Latin, what is the origin of the word hocus pocus? It's the Latin hoc est corpus meum. The Eucharist, the priest would have been standing in front of the altar with back to the people saying hoc est corpus and then elevate to the sacrifice. And this was considered like a magical moment. So we get our word hocus pocus from that. The people didn't understand a word of it. Some clergy didn't understand a word of it even as they were saying it. They were just taught to mouth the words. You know, when I went to Hebrew school, it was interesting. I was to read Hebrew, but I studied my bar mitzvah portion, which was about the rebellion of Korach, strange that. Um, but it was not Israel and learned Hebrew that I suddenly, that's what I'd been saying. That's what I'd been saying. It wasn't until then that I understood the liturgy. The people didn't understand it. And therefore, this does nothing for your spiritual development. You have to hear the words of the liturgy in your own language. Because principles, especially principles one and two, you're hearing your liturgy not just in language, but in the language of the Bible. And you're hearing it also, heard it in the early series of Christian. Reformation in England, I have to honestly. Do you know one definition of the woman in England? A gentleman knows how to play the bagpipe and doesn't. <laughs> and uh, what I should have said is anybody wearing kilts should you here. All right, any further questions? I saw one back there. Yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> um, the word peaceable might be the operative concept here. Um, and this is why I'm saying maybe the challenge is can the Anglican communion itself be held together? Because we're beginning to find that of some of the disputes that are taking place now in the Anglican communion are really in the process of tearing the church apart and some churches have gone into schism. And that's most unfortunate. Uh, I'm reminded of something, the House of Bishops of the Episcopal Church was meeting at general and the dispute 
I think it was almost certainly so and so heated, decided they needed to go into executive session. And instead of sitting in rows according tables and actually talk to one another, one of the greet the press, and he said, we have not yet achieved disagreement. We have not um, because one of the found this out, you know, when I was a priest, that from training was Wittgenstein's game. That in a sense, language is like playing a game. The problem comes when you get people who make the same words, but they're them to make the same things. You're playing different games.